I'm Doug Marcello. This is Transport Center, and thanks for joining me. If you want to know where we are and where we're going with the FMCSA regulations, the person to go to is Dan Horvath, Vice President of Safety Policy for the ATA. Dan was kind enough to share his time, insights, thoughts, perspectives on where we stand with the most recent regulations and thoughts about where we're going. Here's what Dan had to say. Hey, Dan, thanks for uh, taking time today, sharing your information with us on past, present, and future regulations that we have. Uh, and uh, like I promised, at some point today, you will explain how a parachuter on an interstate highway is like a rear-end accident. But we'll get to that. Uh, we're not going to lead off with that. We'll make them wait. Hey, uh, in terms of regulations, most recent one, Dan, hours of service. Yeah, and, and, and thanks for having me, Doug. Uh, so, so hours of service have been front and center lately. And, um, you know, I'll preface it by saying when you look at where we started back in 2018, when the hours of service rulemaking kicked off, uh, by government standards to have a final rule that's in place a little over two years later, that's pretty good, especially in the midst of this thing called COVID-19 that we're dealing with, uh, the pandemic. So uh, we saw the effective date, September 29th for that was a little bit of concern going into hours of service uh, as far as whether that would be delayed. There were uh, some requests for reconsideration, uh, which is really part of any rulemaking process that allows uh, individuals and or organizations to challenge uh, a final rule. Uh, we did see that by a couple uh, safety groups out there uh, challenged the final rule. That was responded to by FMCSA. In those, in a nutshell, basically, FMCSA said nothing new was brought to our attention that, that wasn't during the comment process. We feel all the, the concerns have been addressed. We're going to go forward with the final rule. Uh, so that happened in early September. And then around the 15th, I think it was, of September, as expected, those same groups, uh, not all of them, but uh, most of them filed a uh, lawsuit against FMCSA, uh, four hours of service rulemaking. So not a surprise there. I mean, we weren't shocked. Candidly, anything short of a reduction in the number of hours right. uh, a driver can drive uh, would have, you know, would have would have appeased the groups that had filed the yeah. uh, the, the 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 lawsuit. So uh, the concern was at that point: is this going to delay implementation? And right. now that we're a couple of days in or a week in, rather, uh, it did not. So right. FMCSA still has to respond to that lawsuit and handle it. Uh, but the good news was that it ultimately didn't um, delay the effective date. So uh, we we are uh, into the new rules and look forward to seeing what fleets actually think about it now that they're using them. I'm sure certainly there'll be a little bit of a learning curve for the the, the changes, the, the, the changes in the final rule. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what hours of service violations, if any, start to happen as a result of, of maybe some gray area or not understanding the final rule. Biggest relief or biggest help you think of those four main areas, uh, Dan, on that, do you think? Yeah, yeah. so when I look at it, and obviously it depends on exactly what type of operation you're engaged in, sure. but um, probably out of out of all the changes, the 30-minute rest break to me seems to, to add the biggest potential, at least from the aspect of drivers that had to utilize that break right. before that won't have to do it yeah. now. So. The change being there that, that before the counting time for when you took that 30-minute break was was after eight hours of coming on duty. Now it's only after eight hours of driving time have elapsed that you're required to take that break. So realistically, for a pickup and delivery driver or somebody that's local 
uh, or really anybody that's just not driving eight straight hours, they're not going to need to take that break. So application-wise, or rather applicability, is going to is going to go down significantly on that. Uh, other part of that is now you can take that break as on duty, not driving. Right. Uh, so operations are likely going to take a look at how they have um, that driver's delivery set up, or whatever the case may be. And if, for instance, say a delivery takes 20 minutes, they might instruct that driver, hey, you might as well wait that extra 10. You get your 30 minutes off duty because you can do this as on duty, not driving, which could be delivery time. Uh, and you're going to suffice that, you know, satisfy that break. So uh, even doing, say, 15 minutes of, of fueling your vehicle followed immediately by 15 minutes of off duty, that right. together is consecutive. It gets you your 30 minute break. Uh, beyond that, I do think that the the impact of the split sleeper berth uh, provision will will allow flexibility there for folks, obviously, that have sleeper berth. Um, biggest part of that is the ability to uh, not count the, that time against your 14 hour clock. Right. Uh, what we're going to be watching closely, quite frankly, is um, the potential for abuse in this provision. We don't want to see shippers suddenly uh, utilize you telling drivers, hey, take a take a three hour nap and. And, and that be a normal thing. So we'll be tracking that uh, more and more. Uh, so I think that's certainly going to have the potential to help out. And then for the short haul world, for the, for the drivers that are starting and ending the same location each day and, and not really going too far, pick up and delivery drivers, typical, uh, a lot fewer or a lot more drivers are going to be exempt from the electronic logging device requirements. Uh, quite frankly, something ATA didn't necessarily support. I mean, we like ELDs. We think, Generally, the entire industry should have them, but with those changes, with broadening the radius and the on-duty time, the short-haul operations might be able to adjust to take take advantage of that exemption and not have to have an ELD in the vehicle. And the key thing you said there, I think, for people to hear is the start and return to the same place each day. Yeah, it, I, it, it's not a it's not a leapfrog situation. And and yeah. quite literally, in our comments and um, uh, other organizations that have yeah. said the same thing is. Uh, that was brought up as a question, you know, from FMCC, yeah. should we eliminate that requirement? And our response was no way. I mean, if, if that right. is really one of the only factors of the short haul provision that can that can ensure that the rules aren't going to be exceeded. Just because if you allow a driver, they could do 150 air mile segments across the United States in theory. Right. So uh, a lot of questions came up early on as far as, you know, if I start one day at the same location, can I start? The next day in a different location, and that works, you know, if it's different reporting locations. Right. Key concept to your point is uh, you need to return back to where you started that day. And if it doesn't work out, it's not that you're in violation. It's just that you're now required to complete right. a logbook for that day. And if you do it more than eight times in a 30-day period, you're, you're required to use an ELD. And the adverse condition, uh, that's not a get out, get out of running late card <laughs> either, right? Yeah, it's a great point. Um, I think the so split sleeper birth confused a lot of folks just because of doing the math and figuring it out, and, and I can see that. Uh, but as far as questions on the hours of service role, adverse driving conditions seem to be some of the most, and I think it was hopefully with good intention of, okay, when can I really use this role yeah. or not? Uh, and to your point, it's not to avoid rush hour traffic in the Washington, D.C. area or going around Atlanta, Georgia. I mean, really, it's for unforeseen events, something that you do not anticipate at the beginning of the day uh, and that, that happened. I mean, even weather to some extent can be argued that if you know they're predicting a snowstorm, that's known at the beginning of the day. 
uh, you know, I'd say, though, if a, a 30 car pileup happened as a result of a freak snowstorm, you didn't plan to encounter that snow, that that pileup. So that could be adverse conditions. And while there's no limit on how often you can use this, certainly if an auditor is in auditing a carrier, which is are things auditors look for, and they see that the same driver or the same carrier is constantly encountering adverse conditions, I think questions are going to be asked and the carrier is going to have to have good justification uh, for truly why why those conditions were adverse and allowing the drivers to use it on such a regular basis. Uh, you know, from my perspective, when I audit it, you, you shouldn't encounter adverse conditions every single day unless you're just really in a, a bad luck situation. Well, and I think from the FMCSA, if I got this right, in terms of their webinar that they had earlier on, the key is uh, use it rarely. Yep. And and document your reason. Exactly. Use it rarely. Document your reason. Uh, it, you know, it shouldn't be if you are encountering, say, even adverse conditions on a regular basis because of the same type of sporadic factor. Maybe your routing needs to be uh, adjusted mm-hmm. so that uh, uh, you can add more time for them. I mean, certainly when auditors are looking at this, and even in roadside inspectors for that matter, if a route was planned that you would need to be doing 65 miles per hour moving average to, to hit your 11 hours of driving time, they're going to start asking questions because no flexibility was built into that schedule. So while that's not, you know, an end-all be-all, that, that, that would automatically put you in violation. These are things to look at. And, and from my perspective, in a lot of cases, it's very easy to identify whether that condition was, was, was truly adverse or not. So we tell carriers, document it, even if it's, a, a, you know, an unforeseen weather event. Have the weather reports from that day or whatever you can to cover yourself. That way, if you are audited or even in the case of litigation arising, Absolutely. that way you have your, you can cover yourselves and you can at least be able to justify why that driver uh, used that that exemption for that day. Dan, before we move off hours of service, there was the 60-day lead time on this one. And my understanding, at least part of that was for ELD manufacturers. So, so actually, it was um, it was published, I believe, like June first around that. It was right. 120 days. Uh, 120 was, days, right? Yeah, 120 days. That put right. us to September, yep. uh, and that was to your point exactly uh, for ELD vendors, manufacturers to do the program updates, uh, for, and then the other big part was in, in training and enforcement. Right. Uh, roadside enforcement has to know how to effectively, you know, handle these situations roadside. You have to train your drivers how to use it, uh, back office staff. So that was a common question of, hey, why wasn't this effective immediately? Uh, and we actually anticipated about a six-month to one-year window of, of when those rules would have went into effect. I think the reason that it was uh, a lot sooner than, than we had anticipated was these are changes that, that don't fundamentally alter the existing hours of service rules. For instance, right. we're not saying that you have to drive, you can drive more than 11 hours now, or or you have to take rest breaks like the 2013 restart provisions right. we dealt with. These are really flexibilities within the rules mm-hmm. that you don't have to take if, if you don't want to. For instance, 30-minute rest break. If a fleet yeah. still wants to say, hey, after eight hours of on-duty time, you have to take 30-minute rest break, that's fine. Yeah. As long yeah. as you're meeting the, 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 the federal rules, you can go above and beyond and do whatever you want from that perspective. Uh, shifting gears, why is a parachutist on an interstate like a rear-end accident, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, you know, it's funny. Every time I, I bring that up, 
I, I just picture people sitting at home Googling the story as yeah. is, uh, is I mentioned that. Uh, you know, obviously, CSA crash preventability. Uh, gotcha. This was uh, something ATA uh, was very happy to see come to fruition. Uh, we had the demonstration program out there for a couple of years. Uh, and then the permanent program, which was announced uh, recently, that allows you to challenge up to 10 different crash categories, of which the parachutist being like a rear-end collision uh, coming into the mix was was used as an example. Uh, that specific one and why I tell that story all the time. So, so one of the criteria in the crash preventability program, uh, the 10th category, I believe, was rare or unusual crashes. Right. And, and I asked that from CSA, you know, what is... Yeah. What's rare or unusual? I mean, it, I, I've known truck drivers that have st- struck a cow in the middle of the night. That's pretty yeah. rare or unusual. And the response was a, a parachutist lands on the highway and, a, and the driver, unfortunately, hits the, the individual. And I feel bad now that right. I chuckled at the time, but the response was this actually happened, wow. which led them to, and, and kudos yeah. to the agency for including that, uh, having having that category in there as the crash types. What they have made clear is that that's not meant to be a, you know, catch all for all the other categories. So just because your crash type doesn't meet those nine other categories, doesn't mean throw it in that bucket. And even in the the, uh, federal register notice, the agency say, hey, listen, we expect the number of crashes to be overturned in this category to be pretty rare. Right. You know, they they made that mention that they're not just going to use it as a catch all. And I think they talked about airplanes landing on the highway, which I had the same reaction to. But you listen to Dave Nemo, and there's about one a week. On yeah, that, so. it, you know, so if there's yeah. anything since COVID-19 has uh, changed <laughs> my ways of, of yeah. now working from home, I, I listen to road dog trucking almost Absolutely. all day, every day long. And you, it, it's very enlightening to me to hear the perspective out there. And it, it is. Helps us do a better job from a regulatory perspective of hearing from drivers. And uh, I mean, that's part of what, any lawmaker or regulator should do is listen to the drivers because uh, it's it's great feedback. But I used to use the airplane crashing on the highway as an example of adverse driving conditions. Right. To me, it's you're not going to start your day and say, hey, I think an airplane is going to crash in front Absolutely. of me. Yeah. Uh, but certainly it could be falling into that category if it leads you to becoming involved in an accident, a, a, a crash you could likely challenge under the preventability right. program. And I mean, good news overall, this is something that industry's asked for uh, for a number of years since the start of CSA. They they, they don't want to see crashes on their profile that mm-hmm. really were not that driver's fault. So this, although it doesn't remove them, it does indicate that they're non-preventable and allows that carrier to at least have some, some representation of how many crashes were truly not their fault. Key, key takeaways in filing the uh, data cues on these, Dan? Yeah, so so what we we tell carriers this all the time, and this even comes from the perspective of having helped carriers actually physically do this before. Uh, don't throw it at the wall and see what sticks. Right. Just like data cues for maintenance violations or driver violations, uh, only perform that action first off if you really truly feel that it was not your driver's fault. Uh, specific to the crash preventability program, make sure it meets one of those ten criteria. Uh, common, I, I, I've gotten a couple of these already this year uh, where folks reach out and say, Dan, it meets one of the nine or 10 criteria, but it was overturned. Why, why so? And I dig into the details and find out that the driver and or vehicle had an out-of-service violation yeah. uh, to begin with. And while, yes, that crash still may not have actually been your driver's fault, say in a rear-end crash sitting at a, a traffic light, 
that doesn't mean you know that that be, because that router that driver had an out, out of service violation, the adage has always been, well, that driver should have never been there in the first place. Right. And I and I know Doug, I'm sure you've experienced yeah. this with with litigation over the years of of having that come come in place, which is why I always said make sure your driver's credentials were in order. Uh, the vehicle was in order. And, and honestly, we're talking out of service violations that weren't a result of that crash. Right. Certainly, if there's damage to the, the CMV as a result of the crash, they're not going to ding you on that because yeah. of that. we're talking about pre-existing uh, out of service conditions. Gotcha. Uh, proposed rule on hair testing. Yeah, this is um, kind of a, a pain in our side here currently at ATA that we're dealing with uh, the, the quick and Quick and easy is for a number of years we've advocated ATA for uh, hair testing as an alternative to urinalysis. So currently in the DOT testing world, urinalysis is the only uh, specimen that's recognized. Soon we'll have uh, oral fluids, hopefully, but but urinalysis as of this point. Uh, we feel that hair testing, because of its uh, longer detection window, uh, less of an inability to cheat during actual testing itself, we feel that it, it should be a viable specimen. Uh, we don't want to force it as far as a mandate goes and tell carriers they have to use it, uh, but we want it to be an option. And we have a number of motor carriers currently as part of our membership that do hair testing. The problem is they have to do dual testing now. So they have to do the hair test and then the urinalysis for DOT purposes. Uh, and if that hair test is positive, other than maybe not hire the driver or terminate the driver, there's not a whole lot they can do from a reporting standpoint. So we have the clearinghouse, which is our central uh, repository for all of these. Uh, we would love to be able to report hair tests. Can't do it now because it's because uh, it's not a DOT test. So in order for DOT to do that, they have to adopt it as a rule. They can't do that until Department of Health and Human Services releases guidelines. They're the ones that manage guidelines for testing. The guidelines came out here a couple weeks ago, beginning of September, uh, and, and just are not favorable to our industry. Uh, the biggest hurdle in the in the guidelines is the proposed requirement that if a driver takes a hair test and that hair test is, is positive, the carrier is then required to do a secondary test, either a urinalysis or oral fluids test, uh, and to confirm. And if that secondary test is negative, that's the results they have to go with. Yeah. So for anybody that knows anything about hair testing or has done it before, you know that you're going to have situations it's like we do today, where that hair test is positive and the urinalysis is negative, and, and you still can't report it. So it really doesn't change anything than where we are today. Uh, the reason the justification, at least from HHS's perspective behind it, was that uh, there's some scientific validity questions with hair testing. Uh, so instead of aiming to fix those, they threw in this as a kind of as a justification for their concerns which it just doesn't work. And I mean, for, for somebody who works in a trucking space, they know how critical of an issue this is. Uh, we raise it right away. We're going to file comments that are due in November. Uh, but one of the, the quick res responses was that, well, 90% of hair tests are typically negative anyways. Okay, if that's true, great. But that still doesn't fix that 10%. It's like, like saying, and I've, I've been saying this a lot, it's like telling the driver, you, you're likely 90% of the time you're not going to get in an accident driving your car, so don't wear your seatbelt. But it doesn't address that 10% of the time and, and what the situation is. So uh, we're pretty worked up about it. We're working with our industry groups uh, to do it. And, you know, we feel that 
if hair testing is allowed as an alternative to urinalysis, we will have more carriers, even smaller companies, right. be willing to start doing it. The, usually the hesitation today is it's a cost issue for a smaller company to do both tests. You're mm-hmm. already paying for your DOT testing. To do hair testing, you have to pay the expense on top. We feel that if it's allowed as an alternative, you'll have more carriers start doing it. So uh, we're working through it. I mean, we, we're doing our best to provide the data. Uh, it's been used in, in Europe for a number of years and uh, in other parts of the world. We think it works. Instead of focusing on you know, two cases where it was proved to be unscientifically you know, reliable, let's focus on all the good and how we can address it and fix it. Uh, not to mention, if this rule were to be put into place as is, we think it's going to have a significant impact on the carriers that use hair testing today from a legal perspective with maybe not wanting to go forward hiring a driver or even terminating a driver because now you have that driver that says, well, you know, this was a, a, a federal standard that said that go with the second test. Why are you terminating me or not hiring me as a result? So it's going to open up a can of worms. And the other thing I'm thinking of, Dan, is let, let's say – get a positive air test, negative urine test, got to go through the negative urine test. If driver gets in an accident, there's litigation. I've got a positive. And, and, exactly. You know, uh, I, and that's going to be seized upon. So, yeah. I, heard, I heard a great comment from a safety director that utilizes hair testing that we're working with. Um, I, and he, you know, his comment was, we want to be, you know, on trial for, for a, a negligent hiring case or for or rather a, a discrimination case for not hiring driver or for a fatality case where you continue yeah. to use a driver who had a positive hair test. Exactly. It's, it's not yeah. a matter of, you know, if there's litiga- litigation, it's w- which one you want to be in. It's which one. Yeah. Where, where do we stand uh, on oral fluids? Oral fluids, so that, you know, HHS has had the guidelines on oral fluids. The problem is with the lab certification now and getting oral fluids uh, allowed to be used uh, or, or, or certified with labs. Uh, we, we look at it as a good perspective for industry and in allowing um, the use in some situations, such as uh, post-accident, to be able to do an oral fluids test post-accident is a lot easier than trying to find a clinic at 2, 3, 4 in the morning and getting that driver in. I should mention on the hair testing front yeah. that, um, you know, from, from our perspective, and one thing HHS, I think, did get right is that Hair testing would only be allowed to be used pre-employment and random and not in a post-accident. And that's quite simply because a hair test is going to show prolonged use or use over time, rather, and not recent use, whereas a urinalysis or oral fluids test would be more suitable for a situation like that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Final final issue, uh, under 21 drivers. Yeah. So um, great, um, great point on that, Doug. Uh, Something that, again, ATA has advocated for. A number of years, something I'm incredibly biased uh, in support of and uh, uh, quite simply allowing and changing federal regulations to allow 18, 19 or 20 year olds to operate in interstate commerce. Federal regs today say you have to be 21 across state lines or even engage in interstate commerce, which could be the transportation of that freight. Uh, We know that 49 states in the District of Columbia allow some form of under 21-year-old CDL operation. For instance, Pennsylvania, where you're from and I'm from as well, allows an 18-year-old to get a CDL. You could drive from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 400-some miles one way legally. But you couldn't drive from Pittsburgh west into Ohio 30 miles because you're crossing state lines, and that's interstate commerce. To us, it doesn't make sense that you have this distinction between crossing state lines or not. 
Uh, so we've been pushing what's on the legislative front, the Drive Safe Act, mm-hmm. which creates uh, performance benchmarks a driver would have to go through uh, in order to uh, operate in interstate commerce. Uh, that luckily was taken to the level of FMCSA in developing their own pilot program to look at the use of of uh, 18, 19, and 20-year-olds in interstate commerce. So FMCSA has proposed a pilot. Uh, this is for non-military. There's actually a military pilot that's already out there today that allows drivers with military experience to participate in the pilot. Uh, the non-military pilot, this is at this point just a proposal asking for feedback on the program. Uh, it's, it's modeled very similar to the Drive Safe Act, the ATA legislation, uh, bipartisan le- legislation at that, that we've been pushing. Uh, and then there's actually a second part of the, the proposal pilot that would allow a 19 or 20-year-old with at least one year of CMV driving experience in intrastate commerce uh, and, and so many miles accident-free uh, to operate in interstate commerce. So the, the great thing about a pilot is that it's really a data and fact-building program. Uh, we often at ATA, with our policy positions, we go that we need the data to support it. We think that there's state data out there to support interest or interstate operations uh, of 18, 19, and 20 year olds. Unfortunately, it's oftentimes grouped in with teen drivers in general. And I use the you know air quotations right. there just because this isn't throwing the keys at any 18, 19, or right. 20 year old out there and say, "Here, get behind the wheel of a big rig and and figure it out." Yeah. This is identifying responsible individuals that can do the job, that can do it safely. And having the right amount of training in place so that that driver's trained and we can bring them in to the industry. So that's what this pilot program would do, gather the data. We really look forward to it. We hope FMCSA ends up um, going forward with it. Comments are due the beginning of November, so I'd encourage anybody out there. And if you do feel strongly on it, even if if you don't, use the comment process. It's incredibly beneficial for industry. To weigh in to voice their concern. You don't have to be an essay writer to to file comments, but uh, we look forward to it. You know, our biggest thing again is that this happens today. It happens in 49, 50 states, uh, interstate driving of under 21 year olds today. Why can't we make this within reason allowed to be an interstate commerce? And, uh, you know, like even South Carolina uses this example of you have the port of Charleston, which is a big port there. Right. Uh, yeah. A driver could operate, you know, solely within South Carolina boundaries. But if they pick up freight at the at the port that's come from out of the country, that's interstate commerce, and suddenly right. they can't safely by the regs operate that. So, so we just don't feel like it makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, I had a CDL on at, at age eighteen in Pennsylvania. Certainly, I'm not the only one out there that can do it. I, I think we want to identify folks that can do this, get them into the industry uh, at a, a safe age, and, and with the right amount of training. Uh, and then on top of that, even if you're a carrier that say would keep your standards at 21, we, we still see a couple carriers of 23, 24, 25 years of age. Right. I think that's come down with the driver shortage. Uh, but say you're going to keep your standards at 21. You now could have drivers in your applicant pool that may have one, two years experience coming to you at age eight, at 21 as compared to someone who's just got their CDL at age right. So we really look forward to the results and, and pushing this as much as we can. Dan, thank you as always. You're welcome. Have thank a good you. one. Thank you. Thank you. ATA Vice President, Safety Policy. Always the person in the know on the regulations. 
We appreciate his time and information. Look, we're also on iTunes, on podcast, if it's easier to hear it that way. And if you want to stay up to date with our newsletter, shoot me an email, dmarcello at cdl-law.com. Thanks for joining us.